0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we have your word to explore and we pray that it would lead us and teach us as we reflect upon it today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't mind telling you that I had to think long and hard about what to preach on this morning. Sometimes when you're working through a series as we have been, and you've been preaching it, but then you have to break from it in order to have a special celebration like we're having this morning And the occasion calls for a one-off sermon. The question is always, as any preacher knows, what do I preach on? Add into the mix that the Bible has 31,102 verses and not one of them makes reference to playing the organ. Not one at all. There's lots of harp playing and trumpet blowing and cymbals crashing and choirs singing that all accompany a fitting praise for the Lord, but no organ playing. That's not to suggest that Jean's efforts have been wasted, not at all. But to suggest that there isn't a text that jumps out at me and says, preach on me when Jean retires. But having said that, there is something, there's always something. Scriptures cover all of life's experiences and all of life's emotions from birth through to death and everything in between and so there is always something and that something comes to us in the form of the parable that Jesus told. Jesus told 55 of them, did you know that many? And this one has a message that's not at all all hard to understand though doing What the parable says will be a whole lot harder and is something that applies not just to Jean but to all of us. Now one of the questions we ask of prospective members of our church is this. Do you promise to be a faithful member of the church, serving others as part of the body of Christ, submitting yourself to the leadership and guidance of the church, And giving of your time, talents and treasure for the work of his kingdom as he enables you. And we ask that question because we have this expectation. And it comes to us from the scriptures that all who profess Christ and all who join his church all contribute something to the whole. When we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 some months ago, we came across the concept of the church being like a body and that each part of us, each one of us form an aspect of that body. And so whether you're an arm or a leg, or an ear or a toe, or in Jean's case, a set of hands, you contribute something to help the body function and grow. Every one of us have that part in the body. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone contributes something. We also find this in the Old Testament reading which John read for us, which was the point of the readings from Exodus this morning, where the text describes the detail that was to go into the construction of the tabernacle and how gifted Craftsmen and craftswomen from within the people of Israel contributed so much of their skills and abilities and talents to the overall project of making and fitting the tabernacle and the garments for the high priest and every small detail that was required that Moses had to tell the people to stop. Stop contributing. You're being too generous. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wonderful. Such was the contribution of many individuals for the benefit of the whole and the glory of God. So that's why I've settled on the parable of Jesus in Luke 19. It's not quite the same as the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and so my title this morning is stretching it a little bit but the subtitle, The Call to Multiply Your Meaners, makes it a bit clear. God's people have got talents Called call to multiply your meaners. Especially remembering that the word talent in relation to the parable of the talents, as does the word meaner here, refers to an amount of money. It's not to a skill, not to an ability, not anything natural or supernatural, but the talent and the meaner is an amount of money. And the whole point of the parable is reached in noting and asking the question the master gave to his servants. How did you go and what did you do with what I gave to you? How did you go and what did you do with what I gave to you? And So the message of the parable becomes so applicable to all of us. First consider with me the setting of the parable, for this is important. Now in this middle section of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is on the move. He's travelling, in fact he's travelling toward Jerusalem, having just passed through Jericho, where he found a blind man calling out his name, and he found Zacchaeus up a tree. And both came to know him and confess him. And as they spend time travelling, Jesus' disciples are getting a bit excited They'd been listening to him talking about the kingdom of God for some time and how it was going to come when they got to Jerusalem. Of course, they didn't grasp that this meant death for Jesus and instead they had glory and victory in their minds. But their expectation and the reality of the situation were poles apart. Jesus knew this, of course, and desired to clarify the situation and prepare them for his departure. And so he told them a parable that talks about a day when he will have gone away and he will come back. He will have gone and he will have come back. And they'll be waiting for him while he's away. And they ought to be busy while he's away. Verse 11 tells us that the reason Jesus told the parable was to correct their wrong notion that the kingdom was about to appear in all power and glory and appear immediately. And so he told them a story about a nobleman about to receive a kingdom. It might well be that Jesus was referring to real life because after the death of Herod the Great, His son Archelaus went to Rome to ask Caesar to make him king over Judea. But as Herod hadn't been too popular among the Jews, they sent a delegation of 50 men to oppose his appointment in the presence of Caesar. So there's a ring of truth about the story that concerns this nobleman who goes away with no set time for return and who calls his servants in and gives them a sum of money and tells them, use this until I get back. It's worth noting that a mina was four months' wages for an average worker. Somewhere in today's terms, $25,000. That's no small amount of money. And so to each, ten servants, one mina each, ten minas are given. It's different to the parable of the talents here in Matthew's Gospel where each of the workers are given a different amount of money, some ten, some five, one one, but here they each receive the same amount, one each. $25,000 $25,000 each, here, use this, I'm going away. It's clearly a picture of the situation. The disciples of Jesus were about to find themselves in, left on their own, no one to give them instructions, all their work to be assessed by the Master when the Master returns. And that date and time, as we heard last week, is unknown. But a final inspection will be guaranteed on his return. Second, consider with me the characters of the parable. As the master leaves the scene and steps out of the story, his servants quickly divide himself among three categories and they're not what you might think at first. The first are those citizens who didn't want the nobleman to be made king. They're described in the parable as citizens who hate this ruler. They don't want to submit to the rule of this man. And their catch cry is, we don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want him. Does that remind you of any group of people? Jesus about to enter Jerusalem and some who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on our heads. We don't want this man to rule over us. Interestingly, the parable calls them citizens rather than servants, indicating they're not of the ruler's household, which is understandable because they did not respect the ruler, the nobleman. What can we say of these kind of people? Well, for a start, we can say that their ranks have certainly not thinned over the years. As believers, we still know their voices crying out, wanting to rid the world of this terrible thing called Christianity and this terrible book called the Bible, which teaches people to love each other and that all are equally important and all bear the image of God. And life is more than clothes or money or pleasure. And these things can be enemies when they turn us away from the one who is the rightful ruler of all. The second group are represented by the one servant who did nothing with what he'd been given. He's described as wicked for merely taking the money, $25,000, and wrapping it in his handkerchief. must have been a big handkerchief. What was it that stopped him from doing anything with the money he'd received? It's fear. The servant says to the master, I was afraid of you because you're a harsh man. You take what you do not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. See, this servant is afraid to take risks in case he gets into trouble or in case he makes a bad choice or in case he gets on the wrong side of his master. It's a common problem as well today. There are always those who retreat into the known and the safe in fear of getting things wrong, who have the attitude to keep out of trouble, do nothing, say nothing. Sadly, servants like these miss out on the opportunities that come to promote the kingdom of God. They might be afraid, but on the other hand, they're not afraid enough. That is, they're not afraid enough of the anger of the master to make sure they do some small thing, at least with what he's given them. As the master said, at the very least you could have put it in the bank. In those days they had interest. Remember that? You used to get interest from the bank? The third group are the servants who put what they were given to use. Their response to the task is different to the others. And the interesting thing is that they did well without actually being told how to do it or what to do with the money. All they're told is do business with this. That reminds us if we are to be counted in this group, we'll have to do something with what we've been given. Something that we'll be able to show the master when he comes back. Burying it in the sand is not going to work. Nor will simply refusing to act. But faithfulness is clearly encouraged and clearly rewarded, as we will see in the third point, the conclusions to the parable. And note that there were rewards given to each of the three categories of people. For the first group, the rebels, their reward or in this case their punishment, was death. It's clearly there in the text of verse 27. And if you're uncomfortable with the ending of the parable, you ought to be. It may sound far too harsh for our modern system of fairness, but put yourself in the place of this master. He's just returned to set up a kingdom that under his rule will be just and good in which people will be united in his employ. But here are these rebels over to the right who don't want him to rule over them. What happens if he ignores these rebels? They'll be like a festering saw. They'll disturb the life of his realm. In terms of God's kingdom... God does the same thing. If he lets those who oppose him into his final kingdom and its glorious, wonderful state in which it's going to be, then his kingdom will be no different to this one, will it? There'll be rebels. They'll end up as much as a mess as this world has been. There'll be sin. And that's why the only solution for this king and for our God is to create a place that's going to be sin-free. And the only way to get in is to be sin-free, to have your sin dealt with by Christ. Others won't be in the kingdom. Consider the, unfaithfulness, the unfaithful servants and their reward, which was loss. What was given to them was taken away. Use it, you know the rest, or lose it. But we're not told anything else. Perhaps they're the ones that scriptures speak of who enter the kingdom but only by the skin of their teeth with their word works burned up and their reward very small indeed. And then there's the trustworthy servants and their reward is for all of us to see and it's commendation one which clearly illustrates the two sides of the one coin. One side says clearly that good works will never get us into heaven. Only God's grace can do that, only with dealing with our sin problem through Christ. But the other side is that we won't get to heaven without good works. Therefore those who did well with what they were given were rewarded. The one who had made ten times with what he'd been given he was given ten cities to manage. The one who'd made five times was given five times the amount of cities to manage. Notice that there's no criticism here. Being given five cities rather than ten isn't a punishment, rather, it's a recognition of the different ways in which we work. Some produce a harvest of this size. Some produce a harvest a little bit smaller. But whatever our ability may be, God has a reward plan for those who serve him faithfully. And that's the point of the parable, isn't it? That God wants our devotion. God wants us to serve his kingdom in all that we do, in every department of relationships, of marriage, of family living, of study and work in public and private life. It's clear from the parable that God wants us to devote all we have to him, keeping nothing back. Everything that he's given us is to be at his disposal. The story is told that there were two boys telling each other how they would always be the best of mates. The first boy said, if you had a million dollars... "'You'd give me half, wouldn't you?' "'Yeah, of course I would. "'You know I would do that. "'You're my best mate in the world,' said the second boy. "'Well, what if you had a $1,000? "'You'd give me half, wouldn't you?' "'Yeah, of course I would. "'Yeah, I would, yeah. "'Well, what if you had a 1,000 marbles?' "'Yeah, well, um, maybe. "'I suppose so. I'd, yeah, "'I'd give you half my marbles.' Well, "'What if you had two chocolate bars?' And the second boy said, that's not fair, you know I've got two chocolate bars. God knows exactly what's in your pocket and in your wallet and in your bank balance and at your fingertips because he gave it all to you and he expects faithfulness in every aspect of life. So the parable applies to us all and it does in these two ways. First let's consider what this means for the one who hears the parable. Jesus told the parable primarily for the benefit of the disciples. Remember they've been expecting glory and fanfare. Jesus told them expect labour and responsibility and careful stewardship not hard to connect the dots and relate that to us is it using what we've been given whether that be time talents and treasure for the work of God's kingdom as God enables you and how well are you doing at that you who are members of this church family how well are you doing at that using time talents and treasure The scriptures tell us of a whole host of blessings we've received from our master that he will one day call us to give an account for, ranging from how well we did using our wealth for the cause of the kingdom or the spread of the gospel or loving the poor or loving the unlovely to not being weary in doing good, to building up others in the body of Christ. In all these ways as 1 Peter 4 reminds us as each has given received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace these are the thoughts of things i think that jesus is referring to when he talks about good servants using their resources well which includes money but a whole lot more than we are given to use for God's profit, not ours. The master's gone away. We've looked at that in 1 Thessalonians. The master's returning. We've looked at that too. And when he comes back, he'll want to know, how did you go with what I gave you? What will you say on the last day? There's a sobering truth that Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But second, let's consider what this meant for the one who told the parable. How did Jesus go? Let's do that. Let's remind ourselves that while Jesus was on earth, he did many, many things. But his one task was not necessarily to heal the sick or be the teacher or be the prophet or meet all of our needs, But it was to be faithful to the plan the Father had for him. And he had that plan before the foundation of the world. And that plan involved being despised and hated, being tortured and crucified, being buried and mourned, all before the glory that was on the disciples' mind was to come. A bitter pill. A terrible cup to drink. How did he do? Let's ask that question, not that we sit in judgment on him, not at all. But let's say this. He did well. In fact, he did more than well. He did everything that the Father planned for him, even to the point of becoming the very seed that he taught about in John 12 when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies it bears much fruit see if you belong to christ by faith you are the fruit of his sacrifice one that if nothing else tells us the kind of master he is he's not at all like the one the faithless described the one the faithless servant described his master as being remember what he said you are a severe man taking what you do not deposit and reaping what you do not sow. That may describe many masters but it does not describe our master. He gives from his abundance. He gives generously. He gives freely. He gave himself. He went to the cross he did not shy away from doing all that the father called him to do and in giving himself he showed that he loved us long before we ever felt a flicker of love toward him and that puts our response to him in this category it's one where we just give back to him what he's already given to us so that he might receive more and more glory. And guess what? That brings us right to the very heart of the reason why anyone serves him and why, for example, an organist would be willing to play music that glorifies him for nearly 70 years and why anyone does anything for the cause of the Master. Why? It's because that's just what Jesus did with all the Father sent him to do and all the Father expected of him and it's what he expects now of his disciples to do it for the cause of the Master because he's a gracious and a kind Master. Let's not get that wrong. This morning, is that what you aim to do? To offer all to him that you might hear also those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we have such a master as this not one who is stingy, not one who is evil, but one who is good and generous and kind and faithful, and who calls his servants to be like him in that respect. Good, generous, kind and faithful. As we thank you for all that Jean has done for us and for you, we thank you for all that others have done for us and for you, things behind the scenes as well as before our eyes, things enabling us to worship and things just enabling the doors to keep open. Thank you that nothing goes unrewarded in the kingdom of God, even a drink of water given in the name of Christ is not going to lose its reward. Please help us as we consider the Master's return. What shall he say? What will he find? What will we say when we stand before him? Help us to use it well what you have given us, that we might glorify you even more. Bless your word to us today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.